Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Hope you had a wonderful Yom Tov. Hope all our listeners had a lovely Yom Tov too. Um, we are now going to be starting part two of our Pesach history-related podcast. Even though Pesach is finished, we yes, but it, it's history, so it doesn't matter when still, you hear it still about connects. it. Yes. So we think of the Haggadah as a pretty fixed text, but actually, certain elements of the Seder were only defined over the course of many centuries. You know, the Mishnah obviously tells us of the basics, the central focus of the four cups of wine, etc. However, certain well-known features, such as Dayenu, the story of Rebekiva in Bnei Brak, the four sons, were all introduced either during the times of the Goenim, which is 6th or 7th to 11th century, or Rishonim, even later than that. And even at that stage, they ended the Haggadah with the fourth cup of wine and saying, L'shana habab Yerushalayim. Nirza was still absent, which explains why nowadays we're saying L'shana habab and still carrying on, unlike, for instance, the end of uh, Yom Kippur, where that's the end. And as late as the 1500s, both the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah end the Seder without Niritza, and many Svardim continue to do so nowadays. Although, we do find traces of Niritza within the earlier commentaries. The Maril, who died in 1427, mentions Chasal Sidur Pesach, that one paragraph, which were originally said as part of the additions on Shabbos HaGadol, the Yetzer. The song Kiloi Noe is found in English sources, actually, in the Sefer Eitz Chaim, which was written in pre-expulsion England in 1287. Adir Hu was composed to be recited on Yontif, but not necessarily on Pesach, and that is also the case for Chad Gadio, Echad Miyadea. So they did exist, but they weren't part of the, so to speak, liturgy. And... The importance of these additions, now that they have been incorporated, uh, can actually be seen from a responsum of the chidot, a truva from a community that wrote to him, uh, bearing in mind that the chidot in his Haggadah does not have Niritzah. But there had been an individual who'd sort of mocked the reciting of Chad Gadio and had been put into cherem, excommunicated. And the individual was now challenging it as being something of, you know, lesser or perhaps no real importance. And the Chidar replies that this section and this particular piyot of Chadgadio 
originates from the Kabbalists of Ashkenaz, and therefore it's obvious that he should be ostracized for his actions. Oh, wow. So, uh, it, they do seem quite different. It's, it's almost yeah. like they're there for the children. For, for the song, yes. So it clearly has meaning. Yeah, and it's interesting, you start with questions, which is the Manashtan, and you finish with questions, Echad Miadea. There clearly is much more to it than would simply be the case of by translating. Uh, but let's um, start our um, historical view with two famous American Pesach icons. Everyone has heard of Manischewitz, right? Their wine, their matzah. They are, to this day, the largest manufacturer of matzah in the world. But actually, they started out quite interestingly and had a couple of unusual experiences on the way. In 1886 or thereabouts, Bear Monishevitz emigrated to Cincinnati, Ohio from Memel, which was in Prussia at the time. He was born in Salant, and in his earlier years, teenage years, Memel was where Rabistral Salant lived, and Bear Monishevitz was one of his pupils and was so highly regarded by that he made Rabdov bear his sheikhet when he qualified. So he comes to America and works as a sheikhet and a part-time peddler. And then he opens a matzah factory in Cincinnati, which was quite an understandable adjustment for Jewish immigrants, especially those trained in Shechita. I wasn't aware of many Shechtim who opened bakeries in their time. Oh, okay, right. No, so what I mean is as follows. Obviously, matzah baking is something which is strictly regulated by halacha, and it requires proper supervision. Now, the United States, even in the late 1800s, is a country which has no kashrus agencies, no official overarching bezdin, no chief rabbinate. There was no framework. And therefore, kashrus was what you might call hefka. Uh, anyone could open shop, anyone could start up a kashrus label. And it wasn't just in, in that area. There were people writing out gittin, bills of divorce, when they had literally no knowledge of halacha whatsoever. It was pretty much a free-for-all. And hand in hand with that was the fact that from the early 1880s onwards, the demand for matzah was rising simply because of the growth of how many Jews there were in America. And therefore, somebody who was already trusted because they had been a sheikhet is more likely to be accepted when they go into a related, into the production of a related product. That's uh, really what I was referring to. And, you know, kashrus of matzah becomes a matter of public debate. Going back to 1862, you find the Orthodox Jews publishing a public notice warning that a particular baker called Mr. Simon has no 
connection to halacha. He uh, doesn't observe halacha personally, and therefore his matzah is actual chametz. You may as well buy bread in a bakery <laughs> for the same price. When did matzah start being manufactured by, by machinery? So we'll get to that because that uh, taps centrally into Manishevitz's success. In the 19th century, you continue to find that most matzah is being baked by hand, but machinery was being developed. And when it comes onto the market, there is a very sharp and significant halachic controversy as to whether one can or cannot use a machine baked matzahs without going into the detail which is you know definitely an entire podcast of its own but just literally in 60 seconds the argument starts in 1859 and there are 18 leading rabbis particularly from galicia and hasidic rabbis who come out in opposition to the machine and then you have probably two dozen other rabbis from Lithuania, Central Europe, Western Europe, and Yerushalayim, who strongly disagree and say that it's fine, and they are led by the Poisic abuse uh, of Shol Nuttons on the Sholemeshiv in Lvov, or Lemberg, as it was at the time. So there is that issue that, you know, should I trust machine-baked matzahs at all? But beyond that, Manishevitz faced another problem. He had competition in his own backyard, so to speak. In the early 1890s, there was a rabbi in town who also entered the matzah business. And Bear Manishevitz writes back to his father in Salant, looking for help from the community rabbi that they should write to Cincinnati and argue that the competition would deprive Manashevitz of his livelihood, and therefore he's intruding into his domain. It's Hasagas Kavul, as it's called in Halacha. Wasn't there a local rabbi he could ask? So America didn't really have strong or, or halachically recognized authorities, even as late as the uh, 1880s and early 1890s. And therefore, you find the same in the UK when there was a dispute between what eventually would become the Federation and what was the United Synagogue over the licensing of butcher shops. They wrote to Rabonim in Eastern Europe, to Spector, the Chofetz Chaim. It's possibly the only time in his life that the Chofetz Chaim quotes or writes the words Jewish Chronicle in <laughs> one of his letters. Um, so, you know, so they would be writing They would probably abroad. take that as a Haskam of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> they might, yes. So he has this problem. He writes to his father. Um, but what he gets back from his father is a sort of a, a little bit of a musa schmooze. And he says to him, you know, make peace. Uh, he writes to his son that, uh, which is in the best tradition of Rabbi Sral Salant's teachings, don't get involved in quarrels or controversies, even if you feel it's for the, so to speak, sake of heaven. So Bear Manishevitz takes this advice to heart, and he understands that to make things happen in true American style, he needs to create the competitive edge, you know, the capitalist at work here. So what he can do is he can cut production costs or he can make a better matzah, one that is, you know, better quality and better received. Or 
the image of the machine-baked matzah make sure that people understand that it's kosher. So he does all three. His son, Yaakov, is credited with more than 50 patents, including an electric eye which automatically counts the number of matzahs in a box at a rate of something like 600 a minute, and innovations in packaging, and a a special Mutsus machine, which was introduced in 1920 and could produce one and a quarter million Mutsus every day, um, which was described as the most expensive single piece of machinery in any bakery in the world. <laughs> All for Mutsa. But the biggest change was neither of these. It's something that we take for granted because until then, Mutsa had been round or oval-shaped, even machine-baked matzahs, because the machine wasn't actually doing that much. That's why what he created in 1920 was innovative. It had done part of the job. But now, because of technology and packaging, it became square. And in 1912, these new matzahs are advertised as Manischewitz's square matzahs. That's you know, hot off the press uh, 110 years ago. Was that controversial at all? I mean, it shouldn't be because the mitzvah is to eat no, matzah, yeah, but no, he understood sort of traditionally... That, that, yes, that's true. So he did have to overcome that. And for that, he needed to ensure that uh, leading rabbis endorsed his matzah. So, you know, in 1938, I mean, earlier as well, but in 1938, we find a particular list with 124 leading figures of the generation <laughs> um, who they said had visited the bakery at one stage and attested to its high levels of kashras. The list is headed by Rabbi Cook, the first chief rabbi of Eretz Israel. It included Romeo Shapira of Leblin, the originator of the Duff Yomi, who, while he was in America, he was there for nearly a year, only ate matzah from Manischewitz even during the year because he was worried in many of the places that he traveled to about the kashras of bread. And here he could take something along which would uh, last. So he actually did have very real experience of it. You have Hildesheim of Berlin, many possibly 30 other European rabbis, chief rabbi of Cairo to make sure he covers the Svardi market as well as the Ashkenazi. And he did something else. So he, anyway, Manischewitz had close ties to Yerushalayim in the early 20th century. He even sent two of his sons to learn there. And the family made uh, significant tzedakah, charitable donations to Eretz Yisrael. And when the father died, when Baron Manischewitz died in 1914, his sons established a small yeshiva in Yerushalayim in their father's name, which was known as the Rabbi Baer Manischewitz Yeshiva, to which the company made annual donations. But it's a somewhat curious name for a yeshiva. Uh, normally, uh, yeshivas carry the name of the donor potentially, but not the surname. So, you know, you could have imagined it to be called Yeshivas uh, Dovber or Rabbi Dovber. Uh, but why did they insist on the surname Manischewitz? So there was a court case in America in 1948, which supplied the answer. 
because the tax court, the Inland Revenue, basically, challenged the right of the Manashevitz company to deduct the payments made to this yeshiva in Israel under the title of a necessary business expense. Now, at the time, the yeshiva couldn't, or rather the company, Manishevitz, couldn't have deducted the payments as a charitable organization because the, the way tax was structured at the time, you didn't have those sort of breaks that you do nowadays. And Manishevitz went to court and they fought the IRS's challenge and they said that the donations to the yeshiva bear a direct relationship on their business. Oh, brilliant. Did, did they right. win? Hang on. Why? Because they said giving money to the yeshiva is part of a larger strategy aimed at using the prestige of rabbis from Eretz Yisrael to legitimize machine-made square matzahs that they produced <laughs> and help promote them around the world. They had graduating students who became rabbis in the yeshiva and they would promote their kashras. And this would mean that people would accept it and buy it. So it's a, a business expense. It's the corporate office. Right. It's quite neat. <laughs> and they wrote that payments for the support of the yeshiva are made from a combined religious, charitable, personal, and business motive. And they won. The court agreed <laughs> with them. So, Is that yeshiva still standing? I doubt it but oh maybe actually i mean uh Manishevet has been around but i've never heard of the yeshiva <laughs> they've probably learned the secret would, by now right yes and anyway you could get away with a, a charitable donation and i think machine big matzahs is pretty <laughs> much accepted so a second icon for many american jews it would not be an exaggeration to claim the maxwell house Haggadah as the most widely known and used and the story begins because of the immigration of Eastern European Ashkenazim into America who weren't used to drinking coffee. And they weren't sure whether coffee beans were kidneyous or allowed during Pesach. So in 1932, Joseph Jacobs, an advertising firm in New York City, gets a Pesach Hersher from Rabbi Herschel Kohn. And at that stage, General Foods, who manufacturer Maxwell House, and the Joseph Jacobs Advertising Agency go to the creators of the uh, jar of coffee and convince them to give away a free Haggadah with each purchase of a can of Maxwell House, and sales rose through the roof. So, 90 years ago, the Maxwell House Haggadah is born, and it's been printed continuously since then, handed out for free in supermarkets, even though nowadays it gets handed out even if you don't buy Maxwell House, but it's still advertising for them. And, you know, you could even make the claim that until then, the Seder in the United States was based largely on sort of personal traditions within prior communities. And so, you know, local custom was creating uh, liturgy almost. And now Maxwell House did more to codify Jewish custom than any force in history almost. Mm. And 
uh, more than 50 million copies of Maxwell House Haggadah have been distributed, and it was used in the uh, first White House Seder in 2009. And there is one last mass-produced American Haggadah, and that was the one that was given to the 350,000 Jews serving in the United States Army during World War II. And the authors, the editors, made a strong link between the safe haven of America, the Golden Medina, and the promised land referred to in the Seder. And the Haggadah ends not at Chadgadio, but beyond that with a uh, trio of songs, the Hatikva, the Star-Spangled Banner, and America. <laughs> And the first print run in 1943 carried a reminder about uh, generation after generation of Jews who have stood up to cruel taskmasters, you know, reading into Vahisha Omda, I guess. Wow. So going back to the beginnings of Nazi rule, though, from the first ages, religious Jews in Germany found it difficult to keep kosher. German law introduced in April 33 basically outlawed Shechita. But even where state policy didn't target halacha, the subsequent imprisonment in ghettos and labor camps, etc., just limited the ability of Jews to follow basic kashras. And Pesach was even harder. The ingredients, the facilities to bake matzah, so Jews not only had to eat non-kosher, but had to eat chametz if that came their way. You know, rations in the ghettos of 185 calories a day meant that not eating chomets could bring about starvation. Now, there is testimony which is recorded after the war that on Erev Pesach in 1944, there were two rabbis amongst a group of Dutch Jews who were deported from Westerbork to Bergen-Belsen who proposed the following solution. They cite the biblical commandment to live of high bohem, that uh, preserving life comes before everything other than the three cardinal sins. And these two rabbis, Rabbi Aaron Davids and Rabbi Avram Levison, pronounced that chomets had to be eaten. But in preparation for whatever Seder people were going to have, they authored a special Tfilah prayer to be said before eating chametz, and a group of prisoners distributed handwritten copies of the Tfilah, and it remains in circulation, so to speak, today. They unfortunately did not survive the war. They passed away shortly before liberation in the spring of 1945, um, but we do have it, and uh, it's really heartrending. They started with the words, uh, before eating chomets, you should say this with sort of deep intent. Our Father in heaven, it is known that our desire is to do your will and to celebrate Pesach with the eating of matzah and keeping away from the prohibited substance of chomets. Achal zeis do'avo libenu. But our heart breaks over the fact that the slavery prevents us from doing so. And we are in a situation of where our life is on the line. And therefore, we are prepared to keep 
a different mitzvah of v'chaybohem, of living and transgressing the prohibition of chometz in the process. And our prayer is, shetachayenu uskaymenu, that you should keep us alive, usugo'olenu bimehero, and redeem us in the near future so that we will be able to observe your mitzvahs. That was their regard. You know, bring us redemption so that we can keep your mitzvahs, which is, uh, you know, a living article of faith, this particular text. Another interesting war-related Haggadah was produced in Germany for Pesach of 1945, a month before the general Nazi surrender, but after American forces had overrun this particular area. And it was produced by the 42nd Infantry Division, known as the Rainbow Division. And it includes a letter from the Jewish chaplain dated April 16th, 1945, which I will read a small extract of. I am confident, he wrote, that this is the first Hebrew religious work printed in Germany since the advent of war. It was printed on a captured printing press. You may also be interested to learn that the soldiers who did the actual printing told us that when they had to clean the press before printing the Haggadah, the only rags available were some Nazi flags, which for once served a useful purpose. The Seder was attended by over 1,500 soldiers. Since fresh eggs were essential to a Seder, we had to travel back into France to get eight carts of eggs. Supervising the preparation for the Seder meal were GI cooks who had the local citizenry, the Germans, clear up. Major General Collins came to express his good wishes. And our last war-related Haggadah, which was produced in Munich in 1946 for the DPs, although no longer enslaved by Hitler, weren't really free. They couldn't go back to their former lives. Most of them did not want to, nor could they get into what was Palestine at the time because of the British blockade, and even America was closed. So how were they to keep Pesach? And their opening page uh, rewrites the text's words by saying, we were slaves to Hitler in Germany. And uh, they answer the question of what's the difference between this night and any other uh, by the absence of small children who would normally ask the four questions. So also a powerful Haggadah. But moving in a very different vein away from Europe to Eretz Yisrael, to a Haggadah written in Jerusalem in 1923, written by the linguist Kaddish Silman, who was one of the founders of Tel Aviv. This Haggadah deals with early settler life in the land of Israel in a humorous tone. The Chochem is the High Commissioner, the evil one is the Arab High Committee, the veteran settlers are the Tum, and the She'enu Yedeh the one who doesn't know how to ask, is the young generation. Although, in retrospect, I'm not sure that even 10 years later, anyone Jewish would have called the British High Commissioner the Chochem. <laughs> now, there are obviously many other famous Haggadahs, but we don't really have time to deal with them all. We saw some earlier ones last week, and possibly the most famous, which we haven't mentioned, is the Sarajevo Haggadah, which I assume many of our listeners know about, especially its miraculous survival, both through World War II and the uh, 
breakup of Yugoslavia, so I won't go into detail, but I will mention one thing, and that is the illustrated page of Morrow has the picture of an artichoke, which is quite bitter when it's served raw and unseasoned. And perhaps we'll focus a little bit on the English language and Hagodus written as a translation. The first in London was in 1770. Uh, the first in America was 1837 uh, and was written according to the custom of both German and Spanish Jews, so both for Svardim and Ashkenazim. This is before the population explosions. There are far fewer Jews there than would be a half a century later. And in 1842, the reform movement of Great Britain, having just split off from orthodoxy a couple of years earlier, created its own Haggadah. And it's interesting as much for what it contains as for what it leaves out, because following from Kiddush is a prayer, tefillah unique, which would not be found in any other reform book, because it calls to a return of the offerings in the temple, our duties, which obviously the reform movement in Germany was strongly opposed to. At the same time, it uh, omits Dayenu, Avodim Hoyenu, and even Manishtano, for reasons which aren't easy to work out necessarily. <laughs> also missing is Shvecha uh, about taking revenge on the non-Jews, presumably out of a desire not to offend non-Jews. Um, and curiously, when it comes to drinking the four cups of wine, only two are mentioned. So not sure why that became victim to the edits. Although perhaps um, the Haggadah parallels not so much the text created by the reform movement in Germany or even the United States, but the early Karite Haggadahs. Having said that, many Reform Jews continued to use the Orthodox version because being British change doesn't come <laughs> easily. And let's end, since we're dealing with uh, English, with Sir Moses Montefiore, who lived in England at that time. He didn't commission any Haggadahs of his own to be written, but he did have an interesting Seder custom. They had a special set of plates into which the wine would be spilled uh, when you recite, you know, the, the ten plagues. And as Cecil Roth records, um, Sir Moses Montefiore was unhappy with the sight of these untidy plates on the table. And so therefore, when they completed the ten plagues, he'd uh, ring a bell for the butler who'd be instructed remove the plagues <laughs> shame he wasn't around back in the day in egypt to negotiate that with, the <laughs> with the, on behalf of the egyptians yeah. yes fantastic thank you very much Ravish. that was exceptional and very fascinating um jumping around history even post pesach even post pesach so thank you very much do you know what we are going to be doing next week yes we're going to have a series which looks at the geniza not only uh, the Geniza in Cairo, um, currently mostly in Cambridge, but other Genezas from around the world. Okay, we're looking forward. Thank you.